From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me today are Alicia Eastman, President of Intercontinental Energy, Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, and Patrick Malloy, Manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI. On today's episode, Alicia and I spoke with Paul Barrett, CEO and co-founder of Hysata. Hysata is an Australian electrolyzer manufacturing company developing a completely new type of electrolyzer featuring a highly efficient CFE technology coupled with a simplified balance of plant. As a former investment partner at IP Group Australia and with close to a decade of electrolysis experience, Paul has searched the globe for game-changing approaches to hydrogen production. This led to the creation of Hysata, which closed its $42.5 million Australian dollar Series A financing in mid-2022. Paul joined us to tell us more about how Hysata is looking to change the global electrolytic production landscape. But before we get into it, we'd just like to ask that if you enjoy the show and follow us here at EAH, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. All right, let's get this episode started. Well, hello there, everybody. It's been a little while, but uh, delighted to be back and uh, talking to our esteemed listeners on the Everything About Hydrogen podcast. And of course, I'm joined with the wonderful and fantastic Alicia Eastman, who, again, it's been a little while since I've seen you, Alicia. Um, you've been traveling around a little bit. So do you want to tell us and the listeners where you've been or what you've been up to? I went back to Japan. It had actually been maybe six years since I've been to Japan, maybe five. So there was a big uh, event there for energy, covered a lot of hydrogen and obviously green ammonia. And as Japan was one of the first to really look into hydrogen and ammonia as a carrier, feel a lot of loyalty towards uh, Japan. And um, it was really great to catch up with people. COVID had sort of split the world and, and Japan is just coming out of it, same as Hong Kong and and Singapore even. Uh, it's just, it's pretty recent versus uh, say London, which feels like it was ages ago that we had to think about COVID. But, you know, Japan, you're still wearing masks, which is, uh, it, I think it's gone maybe in a week. But yeah, it was, it was great to see people um, still extremely excited about hydrogen and green ammonia. You know, they've opened up the green ammonia purchasing office. They've got people putting out RFPs. They've got them answered. It's moving, which is exciting to see. Well, uh, it's, it's exciting. I mean, also, because uh, I'm always jealous of people going to Japan. It's, it's been on my long running to-do list for a while. And I think especially if you're a hydrogen aficionado, um, Japan has been sort of so much at the forefront of all of this for so long that I think it's sort of hard to not feel like there's a slight mecha element to uh, to go in Japan, especially if you're in the uh, ammonia world. So I imagine you were welcomed with uh, with open arms by the by those over there. Definitely. <laughs> if you haven't filled up all of their order book i mean all of the all of the uh, japanese government ammonia orders are now ice orders <laughs> for the next 30 years we look to but there's there's scandinavian and lots of other groups that we, we've got to think about too you know <laughs> gotta keep them all happy oh that's all right yeah. it's, a, it's a hard life too many off takers too little projects you know when you're the biggest green hydrogen developer in the world 
Um, <laughs> well, from from that level to mine, I mean, uh, it's been a bit different. Um, so I was uh, I wasn't talking about um, gigawatt scale green ammonia, but I did get to go to Antwerp to see BMW launch their uh, iX5 fuel cell car, which was really interesting, actually. Um, interesting because BMW, I think, uh, were quite bold in coming out in some ways. I think, you know, the Japan had obviously, through Toyota, had been talking about hydrogen. Honda had had a hydrogen car before. Um, Hyundai have had a hydrogen car, and people were sort of going, well, we've not really seen enough from kind of other Western car companies. So I think it was a big deal that BMW came out and said, actually, no, we do see a role for hydrogen as well as battery electric, you know, and then they actually were very articulate in the reasons behind it. They did some really interesting work around, uh, I think their number was 20 times less rare earths in a fuel cell electric car than a battery electric. Mm, fantastic. And again, the idea that, you know, their analysis from their customer base is actually that there are just some customers who won't use battery. And so actually they can't capture 100% of their existing client market share if they just stay with battery and they have to have another option so that was quite interesting and actually rare earths i think is particularly pertinent for our conversation a little later and then was in uh berlin with mckinsey um who seemed to be all and we were joking before the show everywhere with regards to to hydrogen our friends there um but at the green business building summit in berlin so you know and again another little takeaway from um daniel pinner from blackrock which again i'm sure we'll come back to but it was a nice little tagline i enjoyed was uh partnerships are the new arms race in the energy transition probably an interesting one for startups looking to scale up in new technologies so maybe alicia that's quite a good way to ask you to tee up who is it that you've interviewed this week for the next episode we interviewed paul barrett he's the ceo of Hisada, and he'll tell us what that name means but essentially they are very focused on a, a new type of technology. It's a sort of a spin-off of alkaline capillary. It doesn't require the rare earths that other technologies require. And uh, they're looking at hitting 100% efficiency. So um, that's, that is their, uh, their small goal. <laughs> um, and I think when, when we get into the interview, you'll hear a lot more about the details and, and how and why. But it's a pretty exciting new technology. And it's not the only one. I think there's there's quite a few others that are out there. So it's, it's interesting to think about uh, how they will scale and if they will scale together. Yeah, no, sounds good. I mean, it'd be, it's, it's, uh, and maybe this is an interesting reflection coming out of, again, a couple of sort of weeks of meetings, but it does feel as though there's a lot of work going on on spin offs of alkaline related derivative technologies. Um, you know, and obviously we've had people like Anapta on the show before who've done anion exchange membrane, you know, and there's quite a few new AEM companies now coming up. So I think, I think the point is investors are now going more beyond the, are you PEM or are you alkaline? I think there is a lot more sophistication there. So I think this sounds like it'd be a really interesting interview. So should we get him on? Yes, let's get him on. Hi, Paul. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing today? Yeah, great, Alicia. Thanks for inviting me to talk to you today. It's a, a bright morning here in Australia, so uh, nice to talk with you. We, we'd love to hear about Hisada, a little bit about how you got there, um, what you've done before. Uh, just, just a little bit of history would be nice for the audience. 
Yeah, yeah, thanks. So my background, I'm a chemical engineer by background, a PhD from University College Dublin. So there's still a little bit of uh, Irish accent in, in how I speak, but I've spent a, a big chunk of my career working in, in and around uh, electrochemical uh, uh, systems. And, and most recently, I was actually in, in a venture capital investment partner at IP Group. IP Group's an international venture firm specializing in disruptive innovations. And I was in Australia hunting around for a sort of transformative hydrogen technology and got working with a professor at the University of Wollongong, Jerry Schwiggers. And he and his team had developed this incredible new approach to electrolysis that really moved the needle in terms of performance and efficiency of electrochemical cell. And I got working with them real uh, early on in, in the lab, brought in some of my contacts to, to, to work alongside them. And we did a seed investment. In the middle, in a high side at about 2020, and the middle last year, we we closed a $42.5 million Series A, and I joined the company kind of full time as as CEO. So we're rapidly scaling the company and having a, a ton of fun on the journey. Fantastic. So, Paul, where did the name High Sada come from? Yeah, thanks, Alicia. It was actually from one of the team that conceived of this name. So high obviously means hydrogen, and SADA is the Sanskrit word for 100. And as you're aware, we're working on a high-efficiency electrolyzer. Actually, we're already hitting at our at a stack level the IRENA 2050 target for electrolyzer system efficiency. So we thought a name with 100, which is the efficiency ultimately we're, we're striving for, would be a, a fitting name for a high efficiency electrolyzer company. Not ambitious at all. <laughs> that's great. No, well, <laughs> that, that, that's fantastic. And, and good news for all of us out there that uh, wants to buy electrolyzers that are extremely efficient. Yeah, it has a transformational impact on the um, obviously system efficiency and project economics. So we have a kind of term efficiency win. So when you look at the levelized cost, efficiency, System efficiency is a major driver to reducing the overall cost of green hydrogen deployment. So it can really help accelerate the deployment of hydrogen at, at, at scale with a high efficiency system. Fantastic. Fantastic. And Paul, if I could, so let's talk about that differentiating factor and how you guys are approaching the market. So there are a number of electrolysis platforms, most popular being, amongst the most popular being alkaline electrolysis, proton exchange membrane electrolysis, um, and then more recent commercialization of anion uh, exchange membrane electrolysis and solid oxide electrolysis. So uh, those are probably the most well-known, but Hisata is using what's referred to as CFE or capillary fed electrolysis. Could you give us a little brief overview of what is meant by that and how it's different from the other electrolyzer technologies? Yeah, we'll be happy to, and I expect we'll explore this across a, a couple of different questions. So Hisata came out of stealth mode actually about a year ago in March when we had a publication in, in Nature Communications that really showed the science behind our capillary-fed electrolysis cell. And you can, I, I think I'd like to consider this as uh, electrolysis 2.0. We really redefined what's possible in a electrochemical cell in terms of efficiency and performance, and we're leveraging that efficiency and performance in the cell and the stack to have knock-on benefits to the to the balance of system. And it, it nets out that we've got a really disruptive 
energy usage in, in our electrolyzer. So at a system level, so this is stack power and balance the system, we're using 41 and a half kilowatt hours per kilogram. And that's a really impressive uh, number. It's about 20% ahead of the incumbent technology, which is just around 52 and above kilowatt hours per kilogram. So we're, uh, we're pretty excited. And, and maybe more importantly, that the market is really excited about the benefit that this efficiency can have to their project economics and project viability. Yeah, that's uh, pretty substantial. So you're, you're claiming uh, 95% efficiency versus 75% for PEM and 83% for um, alkaline. Uh, how, how do you actually manage to do that? So, so it's probably worth just describing how the technology works because it's intrinsically simple and uh, it, it really is a wonderful invention. And this was all described in the, in the Nature Communications paper last year. So if, if you take a systems look at a electrolyzer, at a, at, a, at a full system level, they produce too much heat. So, so if you just look at that system, you go, well, we produce too much heat. How are we going to tackle that problem? And it really comes right back down to the cell and the voltage it, it operates. So in, in the high SATA cell, we, we've essentially re-engineered the architecture of, of a cell. And that the heartbeat of our cell is this capillary-fed uh, membrane that we have. So this is an off-the-shelf air filtration membrane that's highly porous. And this sits between the two electrodes. And I think you and your listeners are aware of, of what an anode and cathode is. In a traditional electrolyzer, whether it be PEM or alkaline or anion exchange membrane, those membranes, they keep the two electrodes apart and keep the gases from mixing, but they're intrinsically a resistor. They're, they're okay at uh, moving ions around, but they're not great at moving electrons around. So there's, you're already battling kind of at, at the fundamental foundations of electrolysis cell, uh, electrical resistance. And uh, I'll make a slight digression just to, to bring that alive a bit. So if, if you plug your phone in beside your bed to charge at night, and sometimes it gets a little warm, and, and that's really the conversion of electrical energy through resistance to thermal energy heat. And heat is really the enemy in electrolyzer because it's, it's basically wasting your electrons away from the water splitting reaction and you're forming this heat that you then need to subsequently uh, uh, get, get rid of. So in the high SATA cell, this, this membrane is not a resistor. It's actually really, really conductive because it's filled with the uh, electrolyte. And we use this membrane to give targeted delivery of the electrolyte between the two electrodes. So the electrodes aren't flooded, they're not surrounded by liquid, it's targeted delivery between those two electrodes. And that has two pretty fundamental impacts on the uh, resistance of the cell. So the uh, the first impact is kind of what I've already alluded to is the resistance is very low, or about a fifth the, the electrical resistance of an existing separator. And the, the second is, is is more subtle but important. There, there's no bulk liquid for bubbles to form. So if you were a kid and you're having a milkshake and you blow into a milkshake, your your cheeks can get sore as you're putting energy into the system to form these bubbles. So forming gas bubbles delivers a real energy penalty. And we've eliminated uh, bubble formation. Essentially, the gases form and go into gas pockets at the side. So a combination of really driven by that conductive membrane, reducing the resistance in the cell and eliminating bubbles gives you a, a, essentially a transformational polarization curve. So that's the uh, current versus voltage curve. And that's what we've been able to leverage into a uh, really impressive stack architecture and, and balance the system design. 
And Paul, on that point, it obviously, uh, just numbers-wise, it's clear that 95% efficiency solution is going to be better than an 80% efficiency solution. But in terms of real-world effects and how a asset owner might look at those numbers, can you talk a little bit about how big of an impact that kind of increase in electrolytic efficiency will hit the bottom line and how an asset owner will, will look at that kind of a, of a margin? Yeah, maybe before I, I go there, it, it, this runs deeper than the cell, and I, I might just take a few moments to unpack that a little bit. So if you've got a high-efficiency stack, uh, as we discussed just a moment ago, so there's not a lot of heat around, you can really do some clever things on the balance of system. And uh, we, we've kind of amplified the impact of our stack in, in three key areas in the balance of system. So the, the first one is we've 10x, 10 times less heat rejection. And this is a big deal when you get to these big world scale plants and have to deal with all that heat and their water challenges, particularly if you're using uh, evaporative cooling. So we've, we've really shrunk down the thermal demands on a, on a system. So that means less capex at a big asset level and uh, less opex, less energy for cooling. So that has a, a knock on effect to the balance of plant. We've also got a proprietary approach to how we bring this electrolyzer together and marry it up with really simplified power electronics. So you can really strip cost out of the power electronics by some of the features that, that I probably can't discuss in, in detail publicly enable as we as we stack this cell together. And the third, we take the gas off the stack at pressure. So, so those combination of factors really simplify the, uh, the, the balance of plant. So if we then extend that to a, a big world scale, a hydrogen plant consider maybe a million tons per year and i think you and your listeners will be aware uh, we need probably around 500 million tons per annum green hydrogen to to get to net zero and target those hard to abate sectors so in a million tons per annum uh, a green hydrogen plant with a traditional electrolyzer uh, you'd you'd need 7.6 gigawatts of electrolyzers there thereabouts and with our system you'd need six gigawatts so so not all gigawatts of electrolyzers are created equally particularly if you've got a high efficient system we need less gigawatts of electrolyzers to make that million tons per annum and what's really profound and what's getting a lot of our customers really excited is is the upstream benefit so with a incumbent system let's say we've got this world scale million ton per annum plant and it's powered by solar and wind um, that efficiency gain or that smaller footprint electrolyzer that uses less energy to to produce that hydrogen we need less renewables upstream and in a million ton per annum plant, that's a three billion US dollar saving per annum at, at 2030 pricing. So project developers and that whole value chain really benefit from that high efficiency electrolyzer deployed at scale. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the, the majority of the cost is definitely the electricity. So it only makes sense that that, that would make a bigger impact. I'm just curious, uh, will, will Hisada only be offering the electrolyzer stack or module or will you offer the complete system or solution with ac to dc converter water purification gas processing i don't know uh, uh and cleaning is it uh the whole kit and caboodle or are you are, are you doing um uh just the the full electrolyzer stack or module 
so, so our vision is you really got to do the two hand in hand. So the stack and the balance of system uh, coupled with the power is um, a, a unique optimization opportunity where, where you can not only strip cost, capex out of the system, but you can be very conscious of you know supply chain to ensure your design of the stack and balance the system has got adequate supply of all the key materials and components and, and really doing it together as a let's say a lego block that that includes the stack the balances the plant and the power engineering enables you to uh, uh, get economies of scale as i mentioned strip additional cost out of the system and really make it as turnkey as possible to minimize installation costs when it when it gets to the customer yeah so so we're really thinking of this as a as a system really targeting those large world scale projects where there's going to be multiple gigawatts of electrolyzers deployed over the next uh, several years and decades. Fantastic. And taking that uh, that growth thread and pulling that out a little bit, we understand that Hisada has proven out the platform in demonstration and in, uh, in pilot projects, but taking that growth uh, trajectory, ne- the, the next step, and commercializing and expanding for for a global market. How are you guys looking at that growth strategy, and and where are you targeting your initial stages, and then and subsequent stages in terms of uh, growth strategy? So I think there's a couple of ways to answer that growth strategy. Uh, one is the the technology, and as we scale that through pilot and manufacturing, and then it's the, the customers and parties in the the value chain that that we're partnering with. So we're, we we've got about forty employees now, and and we're growing really uh, rapidly actually. So I might make a shameless plug and and. Uh, try and target the world's global hygiene talent to come work in Australia with us. We're in a beach town just south of, of Sydney. It's a really wonderful part of the world. Yeah, I'm in. Paul's sold. It's already working. Yeah, and I'm, I'm talking to you here on a night on a beautiful uh, summer's morning and just off the beach uh, after doing a little bit of a, a run on the beach this morning. So, yeah, yeah, wonderful part of the world, but we, we've really got an outstanding team and we've stacked a team full of talent. So on our team so far, we've got people from uh, Tesla, Apple, Tritium, which is the car charging company. And, and we've also got, which is a good theme for this podcast, we've got old carbon workers on our team as well. So in Australia, there's a huge history around mining. And so we've got multiple people from coal and oil and gas coming to, to apply those skills in, in really a decarbonization environment. So we've got this great collaborative team working ahead of plan and, and really sort of knocking it out of the park as, as we get the scale. So we're currently in the process of designing a significant footprint uh, pilot manufacturing line. We've got an 8,000 square meter facility. So if my metric to Imperial is correct, that's a, just under <laughs> 80,000 square, square foot right on the beach. Yeah, we're, so we're bringing that to scale uh, really rapidly. And then the scale up strategy is really to partner with uh, tightly with, with customers particularly around these world-scale projects in the hard-to-abate sector. So this would be uh, steel, uh, energy export, industrial heat, uh, chemical manufacture, and heavy transportation. So we're, so we're really focused on those hard-to-decarbonize sectors where hydrogen's uh, you know, a vital decarbonization vector and where our efficiency really kind of transforms the, the economics. And I'd, I'd also add we're, we're really building our scale and our capacity proportional to customer demand. So we've we've already got multiple gigawatts of uh, pre-orders and we're using those to help 
scale manufacture or help scale our manufacturing plant capacity and, and time that manufacturing plant uh, capacity. And an, another important thing I think that's often overlooked in the industry, if, if we are sitting here in, in 10 years time and we've got you know, over 100 gigawatts of electrolyzers deployed globally, globally, and huge demand, and which will ultimately be hundreds of gigawatts of production capacity a year, annual capacity as we ramp towards 2050. You've really got to have a strategy around supply chain. And the beauty of maybe the HiSAT approach and, and the team we've assembled early, while we've got a high efficiency electrolyzer, from time zero, we've really been focused on mass manufacturability and supply chain. So none of the development team can make a change unless it's reviewed by engineering and, and integrated into our techno-economic model to ensure it has a cost benefit, but it's also manufacturable and it's also sensitive to the supply chain. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take the bait on that one, Paul. And, it, uh, you know, I, I think everybody on this call is probably familiar with, uh, and most of our listeners probably very familiar with the struggles and challenges that uh, companies are confronting around uh, supply chain issues these days. So I'm curious to know, to the extent that you can and feel comfortable talking about it, how HiSATA has, you know, what kind of challenges you guys have encountered and, and so how you guys are, are looking, uh, looking to address those uh, in terms of meeting your customer demands? Yes, yeah, so, so the, probably the first thing to say is it's the materials you, you select. So ours, you can consider HiSATA Alkaline 2.0, so it's next generation alkaline. Uh, so, so we can use a nickel uh, architecture for our electrocatalysts that are bipolar plate, so it's cheap, uh, abundant and easy to process, pretty robust material. And the other thing we have is we, we use 20 times less liquid per megawatt than traditional alkaline. Uh, if you go back earlier to our conversation, we have this thin membrane sitting between the two electrodes. The electrodes or the cell, the stack is, isn't flooded with liquid. So there really is a small amount of liquid around. If you got 20 times less liquid, you end up in smaller pumps, smaller pipes, smaller tanks which again helps just with the materials. So, so we've got a really intrinsic, essentially cost advantage. We, we have five times less mass of material per megawatt than a traditional electrolyzer. And we've largely got a polymeric architecture that I, that I probably won't go into in, in too much detail on this call, but it's a well-known polymeric material that's really robust under the, um, the, you know, the temperature pH and oxygen levels we're using, got robust supply chain and it's got great end of life uh, uh, characteristics. So the, the other thing that, that we've been aware of and, and sensitive to is, is and, and maybe this is worth calling out, is precious metals. So the platinum group metals, as the, as the name kind of suggests, are expensive and rare and you know, I'm particularly concerned about iridium being a supply chain constraint in, in PEM. And uh, there's not a lot of iridium mined um, every year. I think it's about, you know, five to eight tons per annum. The material is pretty dense. All the iridium mined every year would fit in a refrigerator because it's, it's high density. So there's just not a lot of material around. And it, uh, about 10% of it comes from Russia as well, which uh, obviously with the the current situation in the Ukraine probably makes that really difficult to, to get access to. So I'm concerned that that industry is, is going to be probably locked into, you know, five gigawatts per annum of production capacity. And if we fast forward a decade, we need to be at a, a hundred gigawatts. 
and 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 maybe just building off that there's other simple things around uh, supply chain around designing your balance system to be you know easy to assemble and manufacture so lowering lowering the manufacture cost and of course easy to uh, service and install and we I, I can't announce it on, on this call, but we've got an exciting development around that kind of global service partnership we're, we're working on. That's that's pretty exciting for us and our, our customers to ensure that our systems in the field can be uh, uh, serviced uh, with, with someone with a global footprint already. Oh, fantastic. Are, are you expecting the, the CapEx for a plant to be similar to that of PEM or AWS or based on what you've just told us? you know, with the less mass, all of these different things, is, is the CapEx going to be lower? It, as I mentioned, it's intrinsically lower cost than a incumbent electrolyzer. And as I also mentioned, there's we're creating huge value for, for customers at these world scale projects just on the renewables alone. So there's a exciting value proposition here for customers to, to, to save on the electrolyzers as also uh, as well as saving upstream on the amount of renewables needed to produce that given mass of, of hydrogen. One thing that you mentioned, Paul, that I, I think you were you rightly said that uh, doesn't get enough attention around the hydrogen sector, um, and probably we should talk about more frequently and more regularly, is the easy transition from traditional energy sector uh, jobs over to the hydrogen sector. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how uh, how you guys have seen that and how hydrogen and, and, and electrolysis and those production pathways offer an easy transition away from jobs in the, as I said, traditional energy sector and into a decarbonized energy sector. Yeah, that, that's one we've, we've had success with, and it's a, a theme we're getting continuing to pursue in our kind of workforce planning. But I, I, I think for me, working in technology is super fun, right? We're, we're solving problems that that really matter. And working in a, a tech company with, you know, real differentiation and real purpose around accelerating the path to, to net zero, that's a pretty great mission for, for people to get around. So we're having huge pull from workers in those sectors to, to, to come on board. And if, if you look at those sectors, and, and we, we can only pick, uh, uh, you know, maybe one or two examples in, in the interest of time, but uh, I have a, a member on my team who's former mining industry working in underground coal mines and an incredible set of experience. Well, number one, hardworking because going underground for coal is, is, is not an easy job, but he was a controls guy. So really across uh, controls, metrology, safety and, and all those skills while he wasn't worried about hydrogen in a um, coal mine. It was all those skills and tools around controls he could bring to the table and has really helped in building a test capacity as well as balance the system design. And uh, we, we've also got a person on the team from an oil and gas background. And, and again, while the gas might be slightly different, the chemical engineering skills are exactly the same. So, so I think there really is great pathways for experienced people in those industries to, to make that transition into companies with purpose and, and pursuing decarbonization. And the irony isn't lost on some of these people, you know, that they they've made a career taking carbon out of the ground and now they want to spend and make a mark with their career to reduce the amount of uh, carbon deployed. Yeah, it is a wonderful thing about the industry that I think that the transfer of skills is, is a lot easier than, um, you know, formerly taking an oil and gas company and, and saying, okay, well, now be a utility and, 
and do wind and solar. I think uh, a lot of the skills are just much more applicable to hydrogen um, or, you know, when we're dealing with molecules. Uh, so it's um, a lot easier transition, but maybe they're just going because you're on the beach. <laughs> well, there, there is a, a lifestyle and company culture aspect to it. So, so we do live in a beautiful part of the world. As I mentioned earlier, Wollongong, it's about 40 miles uh, south of Sydney, the beautiful beach town. And uh, I like to think of it as Southern California without the traffic. Have you thought of any other particular places that you think you might put facilities or offices? I know this is the headquarters you're talking about, and you're definitely going to expand and and in gigawatts. But have you your sights on a particular country or region? Yeah, well, this this, this might uh, sound a bit of a cliche, but um, uh, decarbonization has no has no borders, right? So we've been <laughs> thinking globally. Since, since day one about how we can deploy our uh, technology and in industries that will have the biggest impact. So our plan, our strategy is to build pilot line and first manufacturing underneath one roof in, in the Wollongong area. We've got all the skills and access to talent and supply chain we need to make that happen. With a well-harmonized manufacturing line, we can then smart copy that to jurisdictions around the world where, where demand is high. So. We, we have a, a commercial resource in, in the U.S., and we've just recently hired a, a head of Europe who's going to be starting imminently as well. So we're seeing major market pull out of uh, Europe, U.S., and, and, of course, Australia. So And, and we're, we're working through uh, timing and location of those, those key plants. Fantastic. I, I, Go I'm ahead. just going to add an um, ad additional point, and I, I probably won't say too much and, and just leave you with a bit of a, uh, a teaser on this topic. So man mass manufacturing of electrolyzers is a interesting challenge, right? The industry, there's been great electrolyzers being made for, for 50 years, but it's largely been a cottage industry, uh, hand-assembled cells with kind of an architecture that lends itself well to, to hand assembly. So our cell architecture, polymeric-based, you can injection mold really lends itself well to hyperscaling quickly with a set of manufacturing partners not accessible to uh, the incumbent electrolyzer. So, so we're pretty excited about our prospects of getting to to scale. And this isn't the first gigawatt line. This is tens of gigawatts per annum as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. So that's just an exciting element of the uh, of our stack architecture that leans off that high efficiency capillary fed cell that we we talked about earlier. Great. Well, it sounds like a, a wonderful package of <laughs> of uh, compelling features. Can't think of anything to argue with. <laughs> hey, we we really try. We, we have a pretty experienced team that's had a bunch of experience in electrolysis. So so we're trying to lean on all that experience and, and engineer out a lot of the challenges with the existing architectures and. Um, We've had a lot of hard work to, to get here, and we've more hard work um, ahead of us. But it's certainly an exciting journey. Well, I think that's a that's a perfect note to end on, and I think love the optimism and uh, and I love the the approach that you guys have taken. So I really appreciate Paul you making the time to join us, and uh, really appreciate your insights and and uh, background about what Hisada is doing to help decarbonize the energy economy. Thanks very much. Yeah, appreciate the opportunity and look forward to uh, listening to your future podcast too. It's a great channel. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Paul. Cool. 
So, uh, Alicia, you know, we sort of said at the start that, you know, we were going to talk about the new super efficient type of electrolysis technology that is out in the market and talk a little bit about what that means. And I think there were a whole bunch of things that came out of that interview. Do you kind of have a, a preferred place to start? Obviously, what, I, what the first thing that catches you is is the name Haisada, as he explains that to us, that Sada is uh, Sanskrit for 100. And that's their goal. They'd like to hit 100% efficiency. They have definitely very ambitious goals. Um, they talked a lot about a lot of advantages to their technology. So less CapEx, less OpEx, longer life, not using the platinum group of metals, specifically iridium, I think is, is one of their concerns. I, I believe he said that a, all of the iridium in the world could fit in a refrigerator that uh, seemed rather rare. <laughs> it does make you think we can't just, you know, make as many electrolyters as we as we'd like. Whereas with his his technology, uh, there's less uh, rare elements that need need to be used. So I mean, I think it's it's pretty compelling. There's definitely a lot of advantages, but it obviously all comes down to can you scale it? And when you start to scale it, does it act like it did? over the 10,000 hours that you've already used it. And I think we find ourselves at this point <laughs> every time we meet a new uh, electrolyzer company that has you know, great aims for being more efficient. But, but of course, we, we all have to figure out a way to see if they're going to be able to scale. And I think I have my opinion on how I think that will happen, but what, what, what do you think? I think, you know, uh, it's always interesting when people talk about rare earths as a constraint, because I guess it just depends on who you go and speak to, right? So, you know, giving you two sort of examples. So I was at, um, I mentioned at the start, uh, I was at this conference relatively recently, it's McKinsey event, and one of the speakers there was talking about iridium demand. And they were saying that in the last sort of five years, iridium demand per gigawatt of electrolysis has fallen from about one ton to 0.3 tons. You know, that is a material decrease in the amount of iridium needed per gigawatt of electrolysis capacity. And you saw similar things with platinum in the early fuel cells that Toyota used. So I think the numbers for the Mirai is something like the first generation to the second generation Mirai. It's something like half or a quarter of the platinum required going from one generation to the other in terms of fuel cell. So that's not to say that I think there isn't a shortage. There clearly is. But it's just to say that I think firstly, shortage and scarcity tends to drive efficiency improvements very quickly. And it's just the fact that we've not been producing these things at scale has meant people haven't really had to think about how to use them more efficiently. I think as people do start thinking about scaling, you will see that actually there's a lot of inefficiencies in current manufacturing processes for existing technology. And that will drive some quite significant efficiency improvements in terms of the resource. And that will translate into price and a lower price, which is also great for the market. So I think some of that constraint will come from just better design. I, I think then there's also another piece here, which is to do with recyclability. So because iridium and platinum and a number of these other materials are quite rare, something we forget is that we've actually built a very good ecosystem for recycling them. They have an extremely high recyclability rate because we've invested in making them recyclable. Whereas there's a lot of other minerals and earths that we use that we don't really recycle and we don't invest the capital to recycle in the same way. So again, if we're thinking about a net zero world and how we use resources sufficiently, it's not necessarily uh, as black and white is going. It's quite limited. It takes up, you know, we don't have that much of it. Therefore, we shouldn't use it. I think there is quite a lot of nuance there. Now, what I think he opens up the conversation very well to do, though, is to go, this isn't going to get you 100% of the way there. This is going to be a solution using these current technologies that gets you maybe the next 
you know, he might say five, I might say 10, but it's still clear it's not 20, 30 years. So then exactly to your point, the question kind of is, if it's going to help you, if you need a new technology that you know you need in 10 years time or five years time, how do we start scaling that today to get to that point? And, you know, that's a question I was going to put back to you, Alicia, which is, you know, you're building these huge multi-gigawatt scale projects, right, where they're massive economies of scale, they're long time, they're long range, they're going to need brand new manufacturing capacity built. How does a company like Hisata and some of these other, you know, brand new companies that we've spoken to or relatively early stage companies get businesses like yours or equally how do you get investors and banks and insurers comfortable with using these types of technologies for projects at that scale well i mean i think there's a number of ways this can happen i mean going back to the rare part of it i think you left out one other solution which is that obviously a lot of them are not rare um and that you have countries like the us and saudi and a number of different uh, places that are going to start mining for specifically these these things that we've been getting from china or we've been getting from congo or things that, that we've been getting from particular places i think there's made a, a lot more diversity of that supply and and we want that because of all the supply chain shocks that we've gone through because of covid and that's made everybody really worried about you know supply chain but also um just you know the how limited the supply is so well, I guess we'll see. But uh, if you don't have to wait for that to happen, I, I guess that would give you an advantage for sure. And then the question is, do these advantages last over time? And are there other OPEX or other issues that you run into that you haven't foreseen? And I, I think that you really want to work with a company that has people in it or is partnered with a company that has serious manufacturing expertise you know, not just the basics of buying as much as you can off the shelf or modularizing what you can and automation, but, you know, a serious manufacturer that that the people are, are really used to optimizing the process of manufacturing. I think that's one of the key areas. Normally, people talk about scaling. They say, okay, it's scale. There's going to be learning and there's going to be economies of scale, essentially, and that's how the prices come down. But I think part of the price is coming down is going to be the manufacturing processes and the degree to automation, the degree of automation that you use. And that is really going to favor larger facilities because you're going to put in all that automation. You need to be producing a lot of product. So I think there are, if you look at a lot of the new technologies coming out, we've interviewed some in the last couple of weeks, a lot of them are focused on very large projects or they're not focused on very large projects. And I think that that sort of makes sense. They do need to choose a lane because some of them are going to make their, they're gonna get their profits or they're going to get their prices down in manufacturing uh, processes and optimization. And some might be doing it in, a, in another fashion and they're, they're more spec producers. They might be doing more um, bespoke type of, of projects. And, you know, it just makes more sense for smaller projects, smaller, that, that all adds up to probably larger amounts per project, but still uh, it will be much lower prices than now. But I also think there are definitely big manufacturers out there that have some kind of electrolyzer technology, but maybe I've never really scaled it too great. I mean, nobody's scaled their electrolytic technology, essentially, but that are probably going to be candidates to be acquiring 
some of these new technologies. So they would be able to help them along, to help them um, plan out, you know, how do you build a, a huge facility that's going to have so much running through it? I, th- I think there's a lot of, of um, management and architecture uh, sort of expertise that it's going to be necessary for these large facilities. So I, I think there'll be some acquisitions Definitely. It's interesting, you know, the question of kind of how do you do this? I mean, I sort of mentioned at the beginning this line of, you know, partnerships being the new arms race. I mean, it, it was interesting, again, so just different perspectives on this one. I was reflecting a little bit. You know, you have actually quite a spread of different tactics across the ecosystem to reflect on, right? So you have the direct acquisition approach, which would be HTEC and MAN, right, which was just 100% acquired the PEM company, took it onto their sheet, and, you know, now you have that as part of your offering. You know, uh, you have a weird sort of hybrid partnership ownership structure, which is effectively what happened when Cummins acquired Hydrogenics, which is that, you know, Airlikid already had a 20% stake and actually they allowed Airlikid to stay in even though, you know, Cummins acquired the other 80%. So they didn't take 100%. You know, you've got a partnership framework type plays where someone like a Siemens Energy partners with an Airlikid to scale something up. You've got Linda as effectively a JV with ITM, which again is not an acquisition. It's a partnering to scale and then providing EPC as well as the other piece. And then you've got people like Anapta that's doing 100% of the manufacturing, but then they've got system integrators who go and actually pull all the stuff together and they've got a network of partners that then actually go out and effectively modularize it. And, and even that's changing now, I think, I guess, with probably their new product. And then people like Sarah's Power who license to Bosch, right? And to Waichi. And then they and then they go and they do the serial manufacturing. So, you know, you have this enormous spectrum of completely different strategies for these companies to go to market. You know, as I mentioned, everything from 100% acquisition to two, three owners to JVs to licensing. And and it's fascinating. And I, I don't know necessarily how this would work. I mean, I remember Ineos turning around to me a while ago going, you know, we know how to serial manufacture half a gigawatt, gigawatt a year tomorrow. We're just not convinced the market's big enough for invest, us to invest the time in it. And ThyssenKrupp probably would have said that before, I guess, they, they first sort of got started with their projects. They were sort of, you know, almost surprised that suddenly everyone was interested in this little, not very well-known division that they had within the company and suddenly realized, oh my God, everyone <laughs> is finally interested in, in it. I mean, I think you know, it, was, it was like Christmas came early for ThyssenKrupp. They suddenly went, oh my God, we can't figure out what we're going to do with our business. And then suddenly hydrogen came out. <laughs> ThyssenKrupp has the, the largest and youngest steel facility in all of Europe, and they're going to convert it to green. So they themselves need these electrolyzers. <laughs> you know, they, they probably need to um, uh, make sure they produce them just so that somebody makes the a hydrogen for them to use to, to go green. Having toured that facility uh, definitely needs an upgrade. <laughs> um, but that's interesting too, Alicia, isn't it? Is, is, you know, and actually that invites a whole other question, right? Which is, are we in the market looking at this in too much of a traditional way? Because, you know, actually there is an argument that maybe one of the things that we're missing here is this more vertically integrated strategy, right? I mean, you know, if you think about H2 Green Steel, that's the structure there. I mean, if you go even more extreme, if you go and speak to... Um, exactly. ArcelorMittal is a good example, but but yeah, H2 Green Steel is definitely an example. Sort of starting with the tough one first in a way, and then uh, going back to the hydrogen. Yeah, 
there could be a lot of different configurations, I think, uh, where one partner brings something to the table in the form of demand or expertise, and then the other partner is, is bringing, um, you know, either the capacity, the management, the the project, the land. I mean, there's just so many different things that uh, the partners can bring to the table. And all of our projects, as you know, are consortia. So, you know, we're very familiar with uh, having pro partners. We have multiple partners in every project. And then, of course, all after that, you've got technology partners. And then you've got, you know, it's just every project, it ends up being so many third-party partners, which we would have traditionally maybe 20 years ago referred to as third-party consultants. But they do seem to be more like partners. They're all sort of interested in growing their business in the same direction. And so they really want to get involved in a more intense way than, than I think we're used to. But I think what's interesting here is, you know, I was listening to Rob Trezona talk about Ceres because he'd been, uh, Rob Trezona is one of the founding partners of Kiko Ventures and they'd been, um, he'd been on the board of Ceres for a number of years. And, you know, his sort of observation that one thing the startups don't as well and they shouldn't be expected to do as well, and I'm paraphrasing here, you know, is to be able to do scale manufacturing. Yeah. Right. You know, the idea that a startup is going to be able to come in and do something as efficiently as a Bosch or as efficiently as, you know, a Toyota is just clearly not realistic. But what they can do is they can think about different ways of doing the process and they're going to think about different ways of coming at some of these challenges, which I guess is back to this partnership type thing. And it does seem to me, uh, I do think people who try going this entirely on their own are going to find it almost impossible to keep up and to sort of meet the pace of the transition. It's going to have to be picking a partner to get into bed with and going, right, <laughs> you and maybe one, two others. There's a lot of choices of both partners and beds. <laughs> <laughs> God, this is going to go down a rabbit hole, isn't it? <laughs> You know, when you say startup, obviously that can be anything from a bunch of kids in college to some partners who have had 50 years of experience uh, in, you know, heavy manufacturing or, or have been working with electrolyzers for a very long time. So the, the management team makes a big difference, I think, in what a startup is capable of doing. Now, they could have a history of scaling up many different types of technologies in the past. And so they may, in fact, have scale up expertise. Um, so that would be, I think, treated differently than someone who's come up with a new, a new model, a new technology, but has never actually seen the process through all the way to scale up. Then I think you would want to get adults in the room, as they say, like you would want to get somebody there to, to, to sort of guide and make sure that they're looking for the really standard um, potholes or the standard obstacles that you run into when you try to scale up. But definitely somebody has to be in that partnership in some way or form <laughs> who knows how to do um, scale up of manufacturing. And then I think it's fine, but I think there could be so many permutations and formulas about how that works. When Paul was on, he was talking about an announcement they're gonna make soon um, about a worldwide partnership, a global partnership with somebody who, I mean, he, I don't think he described in detail, so I don't exactly know what, but it sounds like somebody who's kind of a systems integrator or somebody who is going to be able to help them to implement uh, worldwide. So um, we'll see who that is. It seems like all of our guests are throwing Easter eggs at us all day. Um, <laughs> everyone <laughs> is always holding back an announcement that's coming soon. Yeah, it's a popular tactic, apparently. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, on, on that cheerful note, um, I think we're going to wrap this episode up, guys and girls. Um, hopefully, you enjoyed the episode. If you uh, if you have any specific comments, please uh, you know write to us uh, at the Everything About Hydrogen podcast. We're also on LinkedIn, Twitter, so please do reach out, and uh, we'll also put some show notes up as well. So if you have any questions about the team at Hysata, uh, please do get in touch and have a read. And that does it for us here today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge EAH thank you to Paul Barrett, CEO and co-founder of Hisata, for speaking with us on the show today. And thank you, as always, to Alicia, Patrick, and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And as you know, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Till then, all the best from the team here at Everything About Hydrogen. Hydrogen.